listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Glow by Embers of Arson. This Columbus band is our featured Ohio music artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Highland Square is one of Akron's most beloved neighborhoods, a diverse, eclectic, bohemian enclave that thrives on its delightful identity crisis. It contains Merriman Road, a sort of former millionaire's row, with some of the city's most expensive, sprawling homes on manicured lawns. But it also contains densely populated blocks with low-income apartments and neglected single-family houses. There's a lively collection of shops and restaurants, the venerable Highland Theater, and a popular entertainment venue called the Tangier. It's intellectual, artistic, political, funky, and soulful. The kind of place where if you step into a coffee shop, you might see a man in a business suit who drove up in a Porsche, exchanging views with a musician with a guitar slung on his back who arrived in his well-worn tennis shoes. That diversity also extends to crime. There are sections of Highland Square where people feel perfectly safe taking an evening stroll outside their homes, and sections where residents know it would be foolhardy to do the same. And it's that latter section where the Highland Square rapist conducted his reign of terror in 1975-1976. There are a lot of urban and suburban communities that have a story like this, a tale of a serial rapist that was never caught. There was a recent effort to find some of them, and it was pretty successful. I'm going to get back to the Highland Square Rapist in a moment. That's our story tonight. But first, I want to tell you about that initiative. Mike DeWine, he's Ohio's governor now, but was the state's attorney general before. He learned that most police departments in Ohio weren't bothering to test the sexual assault kits that were collected from victims after rapes. These poor rape victims, after what no doubt had been the most traumatic event in their lives, had to endure the very difficult process of being examined in a very intimate and painful way, only to have the test that was taken put on a shelf, ignored, and not even used to try to find their assailant. Thousands and thousands of these untested, dust-covered rape kits were sitting in evidence rooms all over the state. Police departments excused the practice by saying it cost too much money and too much time to pursue them. And they only pulled a rape kit down to check for DNA if they found a good suspect in a particular case. In 2012, DeWine ended that excuse by setting aside state money and resources to finally test all those kits. 
It took six years, but the Bureau of Criminal Investigation in Richfield ended up opening, testing, and cataloging nearly 14,000 of them. The Akron Police Department was the state's third biggest client, sending more than 1,400 rape kits that had been languishing in their evidence room. But here's the thing. There was a 20-year statute of limitations on rape in Ohio. That means if a rape suspect can escape prosecution for 20 years in a day, then he can't be prosecuted. He legally gets away with it. So law enforcement focused on kits where there was hope of still arresting a predator. There were, after all, limited resources. Nobody expected all of these rape kits would lead to a hallelujah moment. Actually, most of them did not. Here's an example using the first 75 rape kits that were tested for Akron. Only 44 of the 75 had DNA to begin with. Of those 44, only 12 had a match on CODIS. That's the universal database of DNA collected by law enforcement from offenders. So now we're down to 12 matches from 75 rape kits. Of those 12, one suspect was dead, one turned out to be a consensual partner, three had already been arrested for the crime, and six matched the suspect the police had already identified. But there was no denying that if these kits had been tested and entered into CODIS earlier, we might have caught not just one, not just a few, but potentially hundreds of serial rapists. Because when the Rape Kit Testing Initiative finished up in 2018, the crime lab found the DNA of 300 men in more than one of those cases, a total of 1,127 victims were traced to 300 repeat offenders. Let me say this another way. The rape kits put on police shelves and ignored for decades held evidence of 300 serial rapists. DeWine acknowledged there had been a serious disregard by law enforcement in pursuing rape cases, and that came to an end when the state legislature passed a new law. Today, rape kits must be submitted to a crime lab within 30 days of police determining that a crime has been committed. Anyway, I wanted to share all of that with you so you have some history and context and understanding why. Sadly, none of it matters in the case that we're sharing tonight. You see, the statute of limitations ended for the Highland Square Rapist 25 years ago. Now, his first attack, as best we can tell, came November 10, 1975. The season we're in right now, as a matter of fact, the leaves had fallen mostly, the temperatures were cooling, the darkness had started descending in the afternoon. It was also a season of holidays. Halloween had passed. Thanksgiving was on the mind. And families were starting to think about dragging out their Christmas decorations. We don't know if she was thinking about any of these things. 
that 22-year-old woman from Fairlawn who was strolling along Dodge Avenue. She was walking along a sidewalk when a man grabbed her from behind and dragged her to an isolated spot. She screamed and fought back, and he fled. But seemingly, that only stirred his appetite, because four days later, in the early morning hours of November 14, he was back, and with a gun. He spotted a 21-year-old woman walking along Highland Street near Market, headed for her car. He hit her on the head, then pulled her winter hat down over her eyes and dragged her through a hole in a fence that wrapped around a yard. He stuffed her mouth with tissues, raped her right there in the grass, then robbed her of her leather coat. A holiday season that is normally marked by joy became a dark time in Highland Square as the attacks continued. On December 11, a 27-year-old woman pedaling along Beck Avenue at 10.15 p.m. was pulled from her bike, dragged into a yard near Colfax Place, raped and robbed. On December 17, a waitress from the Brown Derby was headed home on her bike when she spotted a man hiding behind a truck. She veered to avoid him, but he was still able to overtake her, dragging her into an alley and raping her. His next attack revealed he wasn't tied to the night hours. It was 10 a.m. on December 22 when he jumped an 18-year-old woman again on Beck Avenue. He punched her and swore at her as he dragged her behind a garage and raped her in the new fallen snow. The new year did not bring a resolution. On January 21, 1976, at 6 p.m., a 25-year-old woman was doing laundry in the basement washroom of her apartment building on West Market Street when a man put his hands around her neck and announced he was going to rape her. She screamed. He tried to beat her into silence, but when that didn't work, he robbed her of her laundry money and ran off. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Two days later, January 23, a woman was walking along Bloomfield Avenue when a young man demanded her money. She gave him $2, after which he dragged her to a nearby driveway and attempted to rape her, but was stopped when a man walked out of the home across the street. February 11, 1240 a.m., a 23-year-old woman was walking along Dodge toward her home, when the man began to stalk her. He made his move, but she was able to get inside and lock her door. 
Presumably, he wasn't content to end that night with a loss, because just before sunrise, he found another woman, a 53-year-old woman leaving her car near State and Water Streets. He forced her back into the car, drove her to a parking lot, and raped her. On March 5, a 27-year-old woman was walking along Rhodes Avenue near West Market. It was just after 11 p.m. A man grabbed her. She hit him in the throat with her forearm and kicked him in the stomach and was able to flee into a nearby apartment building. Her attacker abandoned his plans. On April 29, shortly after midnight, he was back on Rhodes Avenue. A 19-year-old waitress was walking home from work in an alley behind Rhodes Avenue when the man appeared, revealed a gun, and raped her on the ground right there. The very next night, 11 p.m., he spied a 21-year-old woman getting out of her car on Dodge Avenue. He left his hiding spot from behind a garage, pulled her into the garage, covered her mouth, and raped her. The last case I can find attributed to the Highland Square rapist happened on May 11. That was seven months after the first attack. A 27-year-old woman exited her car, which was parked on Hollinger Avenue, carrying packages when a man grabbed her and tried to drag her to a nearby garage. The manager of a nearby apartment building heard her cries and responded, chasing the assailant away. Here's what we learned about the rapist. He was black, appeared to be a teenager. He was a thin 150 pounds on a five foot nine inch frame, clean shaven and with a medium sized Afro haircut that was popular in its day. More than one victim noted he'd worn a cap and a short brown jacket. A police artist did create a composite picture, but it didn't help. The rapist had something of a pattern in that most of his victims were out in the open, walking or bicycling on the city streets, and almost all of the attacks had taken place south of West Market Street, the shadier part of Highland Square where there were lots of houses and garages to hide behind and dark alleys to stalk. But there was no pattern in timing. He had attacked in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. And while he mostly attacked outdoors, he had attempted to rape women indoors as well. It was confounding how he'd managed to attack so many women in a relatively small area over months. It's not like people weren't aware of him or taking precautions. More than 100 people gathered at the West Hill Library to get advice from the Rape Crisis Center. Women in the neighborhood had taken to carrying tear gas, mace, and whistles. One woman told a reporter she started keeping a gun in her purse. Many women said they didn't know any female willing to walk alone anymore. Beacon Journal reporter Jewel Cardwell interviewed one woman who had escaped. She was the young housewife who had been attacked in the laundry room of her apartment building. She said she was sorting clothes when she heard someone walking down the steps. She knew about the rapes and grew anxious, but then it was another woman who entered the room. Just a few minutes later, that woman left as she remained behind to put in a new batch of clothes in the washer, when suddenly hands grabbed her from behind and threw her on the concrete floor. The man told her to take off her pants, but then she recalled something she had seen on a television show just the week before. 
She told him she was pregnant and begged him not to murder her baby. She said it had a shocking effect on him. He asked her for her money. She gave him the three quarters and three dimes that she had brought down to do laundry. The man was trying to hide his face, but she caught his reflection on a dryer as she was being dragged by her hair around the room. The assailant beat her, but heard another person coming down the steps and was scared off. That person, it turned out, was the woman's husband. She said even though she wasn't raped, she didn't think she'd ever get over the nightmares she was having of him grabbing, pushing, tugging, and beating her. I guess I'll always see his hands, she said. Another woman wasn't as lucky. Another Highland Square woman told Jewel that she was attacked just a few days before Christmas. She decided to deliver some gifts to her mother, and her arms were burdened with packages, so she took a shortcut down the alley she often used. The man jumped her and forced her to the ground and asked her for money. When she said she didn't have any, he questioned her about the contents of the packages. Then the assailant tugged at her hair and raped her in the snow while beating her. He finally got up and ran away, allowing the woman to make it to her mother's house, where she called police. In June of 1976, after the last known attack, the public learned that there had been a battle between the police department and the prosecutor's office in trying to end the term of this predator. Summit County Prosecutor Stephen Gablack said his office proposed to use a woman in his office as bait. She was a sworn Secret Service agent and volunteered to be a decoy, walking around the Highland Square neighborhood nightly from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. in an attempt to lure the attacker. She was going to wear a wire and hope to engage her attacker into saying something akin to a confession that he had attacked others so that he could be prosecuted for more than just attempting to attack her. Akron police officers could follow her movements using a night scope. But Akron Police Chief Harry Whitten refused the offer in what Gabalak could only describe as the police chief's archaic view on the use of women in law enforcement. Gabalak said Whitten, and here's a quote, feels to use the woman is an intrusion into his area, and he feels that he has the sole authority to prevent crimes in the city. He doesn't. The Akron PD detectives, as it turns out, were game for the idea, but the chief shut it down. It never happened, and those attacks continued unabated. There's a lot more to share on this, but I want you to have it firsthand because we have a very special guest on our podcast tonight. Deborah Davison Whitford, who now lives in Arizona, was attacked by the Highland Square rapist just a few days before Christmas in 1975. She was the Brown Derby waitress who was headed home from work when the rapist intercepted her. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. 
We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I want to give a very warm welcome to Deborah. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Now, were you born and raised in Akron? I was uh, Portage Lakes, Ohio, out um, on Canova Parnell Drive, just uh, oh. out in the rural area, surrounded by lakes. It was a, a beautiful place to grow up. Yes. That's wonderful. How did you end up in Highland Square? I, my husband and I had moved to California and we came back to Ohio and we were saving money to go to court reporting school in Arizona. Now, what was the neighborhood like in 1975? I mean, did you, did you feel safe? Uh, were you wary? Um, it, it was an old neighborhood and yeah, I think I was wary. That's why when I that I saw a shadow around the vehicle. I I was veering around it because well I, I was just type of kind of hyper vigilant anyway because it was nighttime and even in a good neighborhood you never know who's going to pop out and surprise you. So um, yeah, but yeah, nice old houses you know that went generations back and and we were renting uh, a room from uh, a relative of my husband's. Okay. Now, in December of 1975, had you heard about the other attacks on the women? Had it, you know, I mean, you said you were a little hypervigilant anyway, but was that why? No, um, I think I was only the third person uh, that it happened to, and I don't even think they were calling it the Highland Square Rapist even at that point. Uh, so, no, I, I, I was unaware of him or the person. Yeah, so he started around mid-November. You were attacked mid-December, so you were definitely on the, the early side of that. Right. Okay, all right. So you weren't in a position where you and other women were talking, like your friends were talking about, you know, we need to be extra careful, just really completely unaware. Not at all. I did read those accounts later on of all these people who were hyped up after it happened and everybody was afraid to do anything. And no, none of that was happening at that time. So. All right. So December 17, what would you like to share about what happened that day? Well, I, I just uh, left the job like 
I normally did, and it was nighttime, and I was on my bicycle and just going over a few blocks to Beck and then going down the street. And I did see a vehicle and a shadow around the vehicle, some kind of movement, and I veered out of the way trying because I was suspicious. And that person um, moved over and caught me and then pushed me into a yard and I screamed and then he um, got me out of there and pushed me down one alley and then another. And then, he, so uh, you were and, both, he left your bike behind and he's just, is he threatening you with a gun or anything like that? He is and he's also uh, pushing me and my bike down the alley. Uh, we were, the bike was with me and he did threaten me. He said he had a weapon and I believe he said it was a gun, but it was a weapon, either a knife or a gun. And I wasn't going to say, no, you don't. I wasn't going to uh, call him a liar. I didn't know. And I didn't want to risk it. And to me, my life was the most important thing. So um, I accepted that he he was dangerous and he, he could have killed me. That the bottom line was I feared for my life. Absolutely. So you guys end up in an alley. Right. A uh, second alley pushed me down one alley and then another alley and out of sight. And then he said something I don't want to repeat, um, but he he assaulted me, and then he told me if I screamed, he would come back and get me, so to keep quiet. And then once I heard his footsteps gone, um, then I pushed my way home uh, to my apartment, and and my husband was there. And then um, and I was in shock. I after that, I was afraid to be in the apartment alone. I spent I went out to Portage Lakes or I actually Firestone Park at that time spent more time with my family and you know just avoided the apartment as much as I could and I, I did read in some of the other accounts that quite a few there were there was more than one person that was assaulted on Beck on the same street I was assaulted on yeah Beck Dodge and Rhodes kept coming up repeatedly right now you kept a diary I did, yes. Um, more, uh, more vivid than I had even realized at the time, and you know, I was surprised at some of the details that I had in it. He assaulted me, then he tied me up a little, and said uh, he'd he'd run, and if I screamed, he'd come back and kill me. And then I waited until I heard his footsteps, and then I went to our apartment, which was not too far from the alley. So the, you called the police and they begin an investigation, right? Right. And it was, it was quite a bit later when um, I was actually called in for a lineup with some, uh, I guess it was like four other women. And the only thing that w helped me uh, identify a person in the lineup was the voice. But that wasn't really good enough because this was nighttime. You know, it was a dark alley. And I did not feel comfortable pointing to one person in particular just based on what seemed like the voice. I mean, I, I'm sure I told the police that voice sounds familiar, but that that wasn't enough. And when I read the later account that um, you had mentioned in the story that they wanted to send a decoy in, you know, that 
outraged me because they had sent the police department itself had sent decoys in to, you know, to act like prostitutes to catch the John. So why why wouldn't the police chief do the same? And coincidentally, my brother, once he read that account, he was familiar with the man that said, no, you know, our police department is not going to do that. My my brother said he, he was a terrible person, that uh, it, it fit right into his personality. He was macho and, you know, he, he did all kinds of things that upset everybody in the department. So that is so unfortunate because it. You know, clearly the woman that they had pegged to do this, she had volunteered, she had training, she, you know, was brave and skilled, and just the mere reason of her being a woman was why this police chief didn't want to take advantage of that. And so, because he didn't want to, the attacks continued. I mean, it's it's infuriating. It is because it could have ended it right then and there. And they even had people that were going to be willing to watch her, to have her back, you know, while she was doing this. So she reduced the vulnerability of that woman. So, yeah. Did you feel at the time, did you feel that the police were not doing all they could in your case? No, no, I didn't. I I just assumed that they they were doing everything they could for everybody. I thought they were being police. And my brother had been a security guard at Akron University throughout college, and he was a policeman. And so I I had faith in the police. So I I didn't blame them. How did did the attack change your life? Why don't you walk us through a little bit about what you went through after that? Uh, Like I say, I was nervous about staying at our apartment on Beck, and I found I was spending more time over at my mother's house out on Firestone Park on Archwood Drive. Um, And then after John and I did our bike trip out to almost all the way to Arizona, we ended at Texas and took a Greyhound bus because of horrible weather. Um, When I got to Phoenix, um, in the early years, if I were... Um, in a place by myself and somebody came along, I, I got very nervous. And and then it seemed to the dreams that I started to have nightmares, but that wasn't until years later. And then they became a little bit too frequent. I, I would be screaming in my dream and somebody, I'd be attacked or surrounded and, and uh, attacked and be screaming and my husband would hear me going oh and he'd come through the door and wake me up and you know get me out of it and and that happened with some frequency and it was probably PTSD you know and I I guess maybe when you get older some of these things start to collect in your subconscious and then they start to come out more but um but I never felt ashamed like I had done something wrong of course I probably in retrospect shouldn't have been riding my bike at night. I still don't think I deserved it. And I I also didn't take it personally because any other person on their bicycle or walking down that street, bad timing. And, um, you know, I I can't say, you know, it's just like when I'm out, out out of body experience it, looking at myself and saying, you know, 
you just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, it, it, and if it had been, say, a sister of mine or uh, somebody else that I know, it it could have totally ruined their lives. And, and I don't think it ruined my life. It didn't um, define who I was or am. Um, but it, I, it no one has a right to violate you in that manner. So it sounds like you had not only inner strength, but a supportive husband, a supportive family. And it sounds like maybe that made a big difference, too. Yeah, it did make a, a huge difference. Uh, like I say, the, the main thing was a nightmare. And then also um, in the last five years or so, I, I would like come around the corner in the house and not realize that my husband was there and that I would jump a mile, you know, and he, he used to tease me about it until he realized it was probably from that experience. You know? So that was, you're saying that's still happening. Even just a few years ago, that was happening. You know, yeah. Even recently, you know, if I come around a corner and I don't know that John is there and then all of a sudden I, I come around the corner, he's there. I jump. You know, it, it's very strange. It's almost comical because he's my husband. <laughs> sure. It's unexpected. And and, and so I, I guess um, that kind of puts me on edge, you know, just unexpected people in unexpected, you know, when I don't expect it. So now five years ago, there was a, a story of a serial rapist who was up for parole and he got your attention his name was um, Willie Lagway. He had been convicted of raping several warm women during a five-day crime spree in 1983. Right. So tell me what happened. You saw the story and reached out to police, or did they reach out to you? No, I reached out to them. Um, I, I said I, I contacted them, and I, I said, you know, this very well could be the Highland Street um Highland Square rapist and the uh, man in charge immediately got to his uh, supervisor and they immediately to it. And then I got um, an email back from them telling, telling me that this man happened to be in prison at the time of the Highland street rapist. So, but this article about him was um, by a woman who wanted everybody to contact the parole board and not let him. Uh, and so I did sign the online petition and it, it, he, he didn't get parole. But I believe that this year is the year that he's up for parole again. Now, his original sentence was up to 300 and some years. So hopefully... Three seventy-five years, yes. There you go. So hopefully he'll he'll get the full three hundred and seventy-five. Right. And at that time, uh, when he wanted the parole, he had thir served thirty-two years. He had a long way to go. Now I I know that I sent you some of the information that I used about that rape kit initiative right. that uh, Dewine did in Ohio. Right. Did Did you know that, or did that surprise you? It surprised me. And who knows, you know, his DNA, this uh, Highland Square rapist DNA uh, could have been among those. You know, they just might not have ever caught him to have the sample. But um, and he might 
still, he, he was about 10 years younger than I was, so he may be out there right now, an old man. And also some of the women that were victims, I saw a lot of them were about 10 years older than I am. So they might be in their 60s right now and coping with, you know, the memory of that. So, well, that's a good segue into my next question, my next uh, question. And I just wondered what you would like to share with any other woman out there or man who's listening and is a victim of sexual assault. What would you like to tell them? I just really want them to not I it sounds ridiculous but not take it personally like I said um, take yourself outside of what happened Uh, look at it from an outsider and tell yourself you were not to blame you have nothing to feel ashamed for you were there at the wrong time with this monster on the loose And there's nothing, you did what you could, whether you screamed, you got somebody to run in and and that heard your screen or whatever you did, you you did what you could and you can't let it um, identify who you are. And, And also, don't be ashamed. Tell other people about it. You know, maybe if you tell them, you know, I was walking down the alley in the dark or I was doing this or that, um, maybe they will take precautions that wouldn't have occurred to you. That sounds like wonderful advice. And thank you for, thank you so much for sharing what obviously was a very traumatic experience, but by you, you know, being here and talking about it and sharing it, hopefully other women will feel the strength that they need to open up if they need to and um, take charge of their lives again. Well, thank you for um, putting this out there for all these people. And and hopefully, if there are some women that were part of that or any the um, rapist situation, they, they will be talk to their families about it, be open, and not be ashamed of what happened. That's the bottom line. Don't be ashamed. Don't think you're to blame because you're not. You're not. And don't let it define you. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Embers of Arson is an alternative folk band from Columbus, and it's made up of Andrew Picklesheimer on vocals and guitar, Laura Carter on piano and vocals, Josh Carter, also vocals and bass, Dana Fleeter on vocals, and William Fleeter on drums. Now this band formed in 2014, kind of on a whim. Laura and Dana are siblings. Josh and Andrew grew up together. Laura and Josh were already married and William ended up marrying Dana with Andrew officiating. So basically if they didn't start out as a family band, they became a family band. Tonight we're sharing their song, Glow which the band described as one of their favorites. They told me about the origin of this song. They said one day the band was working and they took a break to have lunch and went to Little Caesars, where they found themselves chatting with an employee who mentioned he used to be in a band called the Puritan Death Squad. That was back in the 80s. 
Well, that inspired them. They went straight back to the house and immediately wrote a song about the Puritans and the Salem witch trials. So there you go. Inspiration can hit you anytime, anywhere. You can find Embers of Arson on Spotify, Bandcamp, Facebook, and Instagram. Well, let's have another listen to Glow by Embers of Arson, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men, and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 